war is not inevitable. We do not believe that there are blind tides of history which sweep men one way or another. In our own time, we've seen brave men overcome obstacles that seemed insurmountable and forces that seemed overwhelming. Men with courage and vision can still determine their own destiny. They can choose slavery or freedom, war or peace. I have no doubt which they will choose. The treaty we are signing here today is evidence of the path they will follow. If there is anything certain today, if there is anything inevitable in the future, it is the will of the people of the world for freedom and for peace. We will now proceed to the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty. President Harry Truman was a busy guy in 1949, establishing several international programs and alliances that were part of his doctrine of peace and cooperation. One of these alliances was the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But 70 years later, NATO, as we've come to know it, has come under fire and its relevance has been questioned by those with little or no understanding of what the alliance was, was actually set out to do and how it benefits our lives here in America. So what's NATO about? Why is it even relevant? Well, keep listening to this episode to find out. You are listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is your favorite global politics show, What in the World? And I am your favorite global politics host, Bumi Akinisotu. Together with my super smart guests, we try and break down the U.S. foreign policy news cycle and things you may have heard happening in global politics. And most importantly, we try to make sure that it is relevant to you. So one of the things that I love about living in D.C. and just in the DMV area overall is that I get to participate in and observe just the ecosystem, the world of global politics from the embassy parties to the think tank events to conversations on the Hill. D.C. is full of just amazing, amazing events, very informative events. And there are a lot of commemorative events here. And one of those commemorative events took place here in Washington. It was the 70th anniversary of the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known as NATO. And NATO, you've heard this phrase tossed around in the news over the last couple of years because President Trump has uh, expressed some concerns about its spending habits and just about the results that we see in terms of the organization. So uh, you may have also heard about the NATO summits that take place every year and you see all of these wonderful foreign dignitaries stand before flags and take pictures and you hear about meetings and events. And so what I feel like is missing often with these sorts of commemorative events and um, activities is some context and explanation. So what I did was I invited two great people um, to explain NATO, to remind people why NATO exists to begin with, and to connect it back to our lives here in America. So here to do that are Alex Johnson and Mr. Anthony Robinson. Um, they are two guys that I have grown to know over the last couple of years, and I have seen them shine um, here in the United States and abroad uh, as they represent the United States. I've also worked in the trenches with them as, they, as they've tried to build their careers here in Washington, which can be very difficult. And I'm just excited and honored that they have taken some time out to explain NATO to all of us. We will start with some introductions of Alex and Anthony. First, we'll start with Anthony. Anthony Robinson currently serves as the Director of Training and Public Engagement at the Truman National Security Project. He is responsible for organizing trainings um, and issue-based trainings and briefings for policymakers, military leaders, and global allied organizations on topics ranging from development issues to improving diversity and inclusion in the foreign policy policy space. Um, I know Anthony from my time in the Obama administration. Uh, Anthony just served at the Department of Defense where he worked on personnel and readiness and 
he he basically ensured that our service men and women transitioned from military life to civilian life in a successful way. Um, he was responsible for training of staff and service members uh, as well. And he's also spoken globally around the issues of transatlantic relations. Our second guest is Alex Johnson, who is no stranger to what in the world. You may remember when we had our conversation about sanctions. Uh, Alex Johnson was on the show and he talked about uh, sanctions and whether or not they work. Uh, he's our Eurasia Europe expert. Together, these two guys are our transatlantic leaders. Welcome to the both of you. So Alex, as I mentioned, has already been through this. Uh, Anthony, you get the honors and get to share with our listeners just how you got to this space in foreign policy and what in your background, what in your personal story or in your career put you in this space? Because you actually have a very interesting background, sir. <laughs> I tend to think so. And I, I've tried to um, I tried to embrace that story more and more. Um, both my parents were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, my father was arrested at a Woolworths counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Most people have heard about the ANT4, but there were many waves of students um, at ANT that were arrested at the Woolworths, which is downtown. And um, interestingly enough, the um, he was housed at the National Guard Armory, which is mandated and controlled by the states, uh, actually had policing authorities during that time. And it's interesting that my first office when I went to the Department of Defense was oversight of the National Guard and the Reserve. <laughs> so kind of kind of came full, full circle. circle. Um, and my parents, they didn't know each other at that time, but my mother was at Livingstone College. So my mom was a member of SNCC and uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so she was going through classes, having people pour milk on her head and ketchup and mustard and be pulled and be called all types of names. So this was all going on during the time that they were in college, unbeknownst to one another. And so the thought and the ideal of freedom for all wasn't something that I had to necessarily read just in a, in a book. It was something that was in my home, hearing the songs that were saying and hearing their, um, their ideal of, again, freedom and justice for all. That was something that I grew up with. When I graduate high school and enter into the Marine Corps, you know, then that took on another uh, piece of just a long line of me feeling like being a public servant. I am, and in this case, working now in foreign policy and national security, just knowing that um, problems um, injustice around the world is bigger than, than just me. And so I have to be a part of trying to help find solutions. But sir. Yes. You were in radio before this. I was. I was. After I got out of the Marine Corps and went to North Carolina A&T State University. Hey. Um, I got into, it's an interesting story. I only applied to one grad school. I had a little, I was a little arrogant when I graduated and I only applied to one grad school. I have a biology degree. And so I thought I was going to Temple for physical therapy uh, grad school. And of course, Temple said no. <laughs> because I only applied to one school and just that's just the way that it worked. I ended up working at Blockbuster Video for two years. I taught high school biology and all in the mix of that. I fell in love with um, being on the air. This is actually the first time I've been in a radio station since yes, I left the yes, radio yes. Glad to so have many that. years ago. <laughs> but yeah, I did radio for upwards of 10 years um, and, and loved it. I live a life of no regrets. So that was something I've always been drawn to music. My family grew up with records and, you know, you could always find some Sam Cooke, some Motown, yes. some, some Stacks and Malico 45. So music was always a part of, of who I was and it spoke to the movement mm. that my parents mm. came out of mm. a, as well. So not necessarily the, the path um, that's, that's commonly traveled, but it's all brought me here. I love how all of the worlds that you mentioned, like they've all come together in various roles. Like even at, when you mentioned the, the defense, I was like, oh, that's right. He came from a military background, and now he's at defense serving serving your colleagues like in this way. So there are no mistakes. Really, yeah. There are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. I started incorporating quizzes because there's just so much to cover in short amount of time that I thought this was like the quickest and easiest way to like put out their bits of information that's really important for the listener. Our guests will participate in the quiz, and they're really simple. Alex, don't shake your head. It's going to be great. Uh, so we'll start, Alex, with you. Our first question is, which of these European countries is not a member of NATO? Romania, Portugal, Finland, or Spain? Finland. Ding, ding, ding. 
And do you want to give us just a little bit of a background about Finland and their role? Finland is, of course, a partner in NATO. And one of the reasons why it is not a member is that uh, many people may know it has a border that it shares with Russia and a very large Russian ethnic minority community that lives there and a lot of people speaking Russian. So it has a very sensitive space, if you will, as a buffer between the West and the East. See, was that so difficult, Alex? No. <laughs> you did a fantastic job explaining. Anthony, you're up. So your question is, the signing of NATO took place in Washington, D.C. in the Departmental Auditorium. Today, the Departmental Auditorium is known as, is it the Harry S. Truman State Department, the Smithsonian, the Andrew Mellon Auditorium, or the IRS? State Department. Nope. Which one is it, Alex? The Andrew Mellon Auditorium. The Andrew the Mellon Auditorium. Because I, I was there last week for an event, and so they had the treaty sitting in there. Don't feel bad, Anthony, because I worked literally in the same building as the Mellon Auditorium and had no clue that this this historic event had taken place like in my building. So the address of the EPA is 1301 Constitution Avenue Northwest, and it's the same address as the Mellon Auditorium. So uh, that's why, again, I love this city because we're always in the midst of history and we don't even know it. And it's just cool when you find out all these little bits of information about these spaces that we roam in through every single day yeah. uh, without knowing. So thank you both for indulging you me in it. our wonderful quiz. This is a great way to segue into the meat of this conversation and there's no better way to talk about NATO or any topic than to start with history. And here in Washington, as I mentioned, we have been celebrating or there's been lots of uh, energy around the 70th anniversary of the signing of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I don't know that outside of the Beltway, the rest of America really knows uh, or is aware of just how significant our relationship is with our European allies, our European countries, the members of NATO. I thought we could have Anthony give us sort of the lay of the land, historically speaking, when it comes to our relationship with Europe. So Anthony, take us back to 1949 when the treaty was signed. What was happening in the world at that time? Politically, culturally, socially, what was the world like? I'll put it into the frame of the person that's, that helped sign NATO into okay. being Harry Truman and the namesake of the organization that, that I'm a member of and also work for. Imagine just 83 days, roughly 82, 83 days after being inaugurated or tapped as the vice president of these United States, your president, the person who you're running on the ticket with, dies. Now, you had been living the life. You had been at the press club, uh, <laughs> playing the piano for Lauren Bacall. You had been going, going fishing off the, the coast of Florida. And then all of a sudden, your, your main principle, you know, expires. And so on the tail end of this, during the first year of uh, Truman's presidency, he's faced with end of World War II. You have Soviet threats. Communism is starting to spread, you know, widely. And so what's commonly known as the Truman Doctrine was put into place. Our uh, transatlantic partners, our European partners, we have a a job. It's a decent and moral thing to do to make sure that they are free from oppression from internal and external threats. And so the, the Truman Doctrine was put into place and eventually the Marshall, the Marshall Plan. And then that led to the Treaty of Brussels and again bringing in more people, the U.S. and Canada and other like-minded individuals that saw democracy as a way to uh, counteract and to go against. And militarily, let's not be, um, let's not sugarcoat this. From a military perspective, that we have to be able to protect um, our transatlantic and our European allies from from this aggression. Just to step back for yeah. a minute, explain what the Marshall Plan is for people who may so not. So the be Marshall familiar. Plan is it's a relief package, and at this time we're talking about 1947, multiple billion dollar relief package for the rebuilding of Europe, paid for by the United States. Paid for by the United States. This was this was unheard of. This was really something we hadn't really done for ourselves. But this is where you begin to see that our interest in Europe 
or what happens in Europe impacts us here at home. So if we're going to be a leader and if we're going to protect our interests abroad, uh, economically, militarily, then there's something that we have to do. And so you also had what was known as the Western Union Defense Organization that was created in, um, in September, uh, later that year, 48, going into 1949 when the NATO alliance was, uh, was created. But again, it was a post-war military alliance that began to grow and it was to combine efforts to, to contain communism. Alex, I'm just going to I want to get your take on what do you think is a pivotal moment in transatlantic history from the moment that Anthony has described to us since since then till today. What do you think are some of the like pivotal transatlantic events that have shaped sort of what we see in terms of NATO today? Well, to go back to the reason and the rationale for transatlantic relations, we ride with each other and for each other because we share values. Mm -hmm. We have similar democratic institutions, and that's why in the U.S. and Canada, why we have formed this alliance across the Atlantic Ocean. And so going to some of the reasons in particular why um, one of the most pivotal moments since the signing of the treaty was really the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that was a point at which, you know, uh, East and West were rejoined in a way where communism was essentially defeated in that form mm -hmm. at that place. And one of the things that, that I've noticed in, and why this, this 70th anniversary matters is that we are now living among generations who've grown up without seeing the immediate utility of NATO and the immediate impact of how we protect and defend democratic institutions. I remember sitting with a number of service members who were in Germany, in Berlin, when the wall fell, and they were telling the stories of families streaming over to the West mm -hmm. and providing shelter for these families and food and a, and a hot meal. And, and these were, you know, uh, soldiers who reflect the true diversity of America, not, not people that you, you would ex expect to see in terms of some leadership roles right now. <laughs> Let's just say that. That light shade. So, <laughs> so one of the things that's important, that is the story of our connection between our communities mm -hmm. and our countries and why we need to maintain that. But you have the, that generation of soldiers who were there, you know, shifting now to retirement and disengagement from mm -hmm. service. And you have youth who are growing up in a much more complicated society right. who did not see that tangible shift and right. what was at stake and what threat existed. So I would say that was such a pivotal moment. It opened the door for a number of uh, additional NATO allies to join. And it, it created a space where essentially new standards were established about how people should have a voice in their countries. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but for me, this conversation about values reminds me of some of the critiques that I read about when it comes to NATO. And one of them is, you know, like take, for example, a country like Montenegro. It's this, you know, tiny, tiny country that many people can't even find on the map. It's not it doesn't have seemingly any massive significance to the United States. And so one of the critiques is, is like, you know, here's America basically checking out for other countries or helping out other countries that don't really fit our national interest. What is our interest in European countries, in particular these NATO countries? I mean, what do they bring to the table? If you're a small country like Montenegro, why should America stick its neck out for you? I wanted to jump in in particular on your mention of Montenegro. You know, it's a tiny country. Of course, uh, uh, our current president mentioned some harsh words, if you will, about it in the news. One of the things that's important is I had neighbors from Montenegro. They were literally across the street. They had sought asylum and fled from war. And so, I mean, but this is also part of the fabric of America. We are made up of the connection between a number of different European mm -hmm. communities, communities from throughout the world who, who build up the, the populace here. And so it's important the, the connections that we maintain through the diaspora communities make those countries relevant. And I would say people, you know, they, all, they questioned a lot. Uh, why, what does Montenegro bring to the table? Right, exactly. You know, and people don't know that they actually have some niche capabilities in terms of deep sea diving and special skills that they actually 
contribute to the alliance. Mm. And so they were courted and brought in for that respect and also uh, sealed out some vulnerabilities along the Adriatic Sea where, you know, you had countries like Russia who were seeking to establish ports right. and other things to undermine our collective and these security. Are, and these are assets that the United States alone just doesn't have the capacity exactly. to produce, you know, in, in an event that there's an attack by someone else or something. Exactly. Anthony, why do you think, what is our national interest if someone's like, why are we over there up in Montenegro? A couple of things that from my military background, defense mm-hmm. uh, standpoint, military you know, it takes a lot of I just think about what it takes to get a battalion up and off the ground in the Marine Corps. Now, think about trying to do that militarily. And so even though we're talking about shared values, but shared interest uh, in the transatlantic space, it goes a long way in, in being able to accomplish our military goals. If someone, again, thinking about Article 5, if you attack one, you attack all. It's a large undertaking to make that happen. But economically, we have uh, interest. I mean, even in Europe, if some of our deep-seated investments are in Europe. So when you start to think about things like Brexit or people leaving the EU, these things have a tremendous impact on how we may receive goods, how we may ship goods and just even the military, I mean, moving service members abroad, all that takes dynamic uh, work. Right. And so we cannot do it alone. So that's that's just two key points. And I also like to touch on one thing that Alex said as well. Um, the generations being disconnected. I could very well be in that same vein. I know I don't look like it, but I was in the, <laughs> I was in the Marine Corps during the Gulf War. Mm. And so I was a part of a NATO mission to Bosnia after the ethnic cleansing and mm. the war that was there. We were part of the uh, what was known as kind of a stabilization forum, which was working with the police. But I'm a supply guy. So it was about uh, goods being distributed to the people to help them very rebuild. And stuff. I actually stayed there until 2004. So. Again, some people are disconnected even from that. Mm. You know, that took place in the 90s up until 2004. So it's important that we that we spread the message and that we talk about these things. But Alex is exactly right. Almost like World War II of Vietnam or Tuskegee Airmen or Montfort Point Marines. Mm-hmm. These individuals are passing on or either disconnected. Right. And you just don't get the story. And so you don't get the full picture. For the full picture. And I think you, you touched on a really important point when you mentioned specifically the reason why you were in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. And that was... There was ethnic cleansing going on. And so this alliance allows us to engage in spaces where allowing certain human atrocities to continue establishes a standard whereby other countries will say, hey, y'all are doing that. I could do that. I can get away with that. And so this is a part of securing our world. And in that respect, you could say NATO is kind of an insurance policy, too, Mm. that that Mm. becomes cash to different instances in order to deter some of the worst things that can manifest in our shared space. This is a, a really good foundation that the both of you have set up for us. So let's begin to talk about NATO and what exactly NATO is all about. 2017 Gallup poll showed that 80% of Americans said that the NATO alliance should be maintained. A majority of Americans, 78% to be exact, said that President Trump should defend all of America's NATO allies if necessary And this was according to a Quinnipiac University poll from July 2018. And if that wasn't enough, um, if the American voice isn't enough, uh, last summer, Congress um, checked President Trump through a non-binding motion, basically a show of support, a head nod to NATO saying, hey, look, the president may not understand y'all or the president may not agree with what you all are doing or the president may not find interest and relevance of NATO, but we do. And that sort of signaled a different tone to our NATO allies, letting them know that Congress is definitely in support of NATO and the sees the value of NATO relationships, particularly for American safety. However, since President Trump has taken office, he's consistently threatened to withdraw from NATO. And he has stated that it's been a drain on our resources, our financial resources, and that it's an alliance that actually hasn't done very well for the United States. Alex, talk us through the basics of NATO, right? There are 29 countries. All of them have to coordinate militarily with each other. How exactly does that work? What's the command structure like for NATO? 
So they coordinate through various meetings between ministers of foreign affairs, which is what happened here this last uh, week when we had uh, a visit of, you know, from uh, all 29 countries. They sent their minister to Washington to celebrate the 70th anniversary. Then they had a number of meetings of the political commitments on why they should continue to ride together, if you will. And then in terms of the actual management of operations, and this is something our service member can <laughs> contribute a little more granularity to, right. but currently there's uh, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe is an American general. That's a it? hell of a title. That's yeah, a great title. The Supreme, Supreme Allied Commander. Allied Commander. And yes, so sir. <laughs> that person has all traditionally been an American. I don't think there's a restriction that it has to be, but given that the U.S. gives 22% of the budget, and this is of one the of NATO things, budget. Of the mm-hmm. NATO budget, this is one of the things that Trump complains about. Um, we tend to have uh, one of our generals lead, keep the countries in line in terms of uh, supporting each other and making sure that all the assets are are managed accordingly. And that person is also the the lead commander for U.S. forces in Europe. Mm. So the military component here. So I. So we have the su- supreme ally commander. commander. Absolutely. <laughs> so that let's guy. that right. guy. So let's say something pops off in Ukraine. What exactly happens? Like, does the supreme allied commander say, "Okay, U.S. Okay, Germany. All y'all bring five thousand troops each. We about to go to Ukraine and tear some stuff up." That's a very good question. You're actually not too far off from that, and there are two Supreme Allied Commanders, if you will. There's one for transformation, which uh, deals with the preparatory, the planning, the training, kind of the strategizing. You can almost think about it like our Joint Chiefs of Staff that are advisors. They see what's happening on the ground. They pass that information up. And then you have the headquarters that's in um, in Belgium that covers the air, land, and sea, mm. uh, the maritime piece. Also, the, the cyber piece as well, communications, uh, if you will. So to coordinate all of that. So you have one which is kind of preparatory, then you have one that is implementation and execution. Got it. So think about when their military exercise is going on or to coordinate let's let's think about in this in this end nato came to our to our call when we were in afghanistan mm-hmm. okay that takes doing how many troops from from uh, from each country who has capabilities that we need on the ground or in a supply c- capacity or in an air capacity so that takes a lot of doing mm. a lot of doing and i would say a lot of those things are negotiated as you said in brussels mm-hmm. so just like we've got the UN General Assembly in New York, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mouthful. That's what the Helsinki Commission works most yep. closely with, but its permanent council is in Vienna. And these are diplomatic bodies. There is a, a body in Brussels where we have a delegation. We have a U.S. ambassador who's based there only focused on representing our interests in NATO. Mm -hmm. And that's the former Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Mm -hmm. And so she's a a political appointee of this administration. She is there coordinating with the other allied states on negotiating the terms of any sort of needs that exist. And does she have a, does the, does the ambassador, the U S ambassador to the UN, uh, to the, to NATO, do they usually have a military background or do they need a military background or is they, it because it's a coordinating sort of present role? They may not need it. I don't they're, know. they're representing the interests of the administration. And just as there's that civ- civilian and military divide, they provide the civilian leadership, but in particular, they have a number of military advisors Got it. and, and key uh, military officers who are part of that particular mission. Got it. Got it. And it's just as important because um, Ambassador Hutchins almost set off a, a international um, issue when she talked about um, knocking out Russian missiles. Please and, tell. Give and us she, more she, information she about this. She spoke preemptively about this. It was at a at a news conference. And there was um, we had talked about the, the INF and the, the, the treaty that, that the U.S. pulled effectively pulled out of. And Russia was talking about pulling out of. But um, someone asked her simply a question about. Have you heard that Russia has these capabilities? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, if they do this, we're going to knock them out out of the air. Now, words matter. And so, yes, again, when you don't have that advisement or you, if you don't speak um, or you speak a little um, abruptly or, or uninformed, that could set off a worldwide mm-hmm. catastrophe. Because mm-hmm. the question was from reporters, so are you saying that 
that you will go to nuclear war right. with Russia. So, and that wasn't the case. And she had to backtrack it. Mm. So it so carries a lot words. of weight. Those are fighting absolutely. words. Absolutely. It carries a lot of Especially weight. Especially nowadays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you look at NATO, the head of the of, of NATO, when you start to go down, if you were to do a, a rank structure, generally the the president of the United States is probably the leading voice, mm. followed by the NATO ambassador. Mm -hmm. So the words matter and they carry a lot of weight. You've both nicely set up the conversation for what is the core of NATO, and that is Article 5. And this is um, Alex's uh, wheelhouse. So, Alex, tell us what Article 5 is of, of NATO. Article 5 is the, the portion of the Washington Treaty that essentially maintains the commitment that if any ally is attacked, all the other allies will show up. So and, if you attack me. Yep. If you attack me, Rob my whole team is going to be here. <laughs> we all, we all coming. Let them out. Let them out. Let them out. Let him out, let him out. All right. And so this is part of really the most, the element of the alliance that has the most teeth. And is uh, the where the rubber meets the road. When something happens to any ally, how do we show up and support them? And I'll tell you, at this recent 70th anniversary, they had the Washington Treaty on display. This was the treaty that was signed yeah, here at the, the in 1949. The, the original signed document from 1949 was sitting there in a glass case, and it was no accident that it was <laughs> open to Article Five. So the page, that was the page that was sitting there open to reassure all of our allies that th that commitment remains, that someone messes with you, we're showing up. So if that's the case, then how what actually counts as a threat? Because like I could like show up at your house, you know, and just sort of linger around and maybe throw a couple of stones at your at your garden. And that's one thing. Or I could show up on your block with all of my homies, with my tanker, with, you know, my guns and make the clear signal that I am ready for war. Right. Like, so how what exactly constitutes a threat or a position where you have to invoke Article five? This makes it complicated because there, of course, is a threshold for engagement where, you know, now in our new new uh, hybrid warfare scenario, if you will, where um, a, a number of different means aside from real uh, weapon systems are used to essentially engage other countries. Uh, the threshold is negotiable and it's something that mm -hmm. people are, are looking at and trying to understand. But really it's about when there is a physical attack ah, more than anything. Got it. Uh, and so that's why, you know, you hear a lot about people um, talking about uh, the 2016 elections where Russia, the, led by the Kremlin in particular, um, led a, an information attack mm -hmm. against the United States. And does that constitute, you know, exactly a, an Article 5 violation? So these are the things that continue to be negotiated uh, at this time. But really, it's about who shows up with missiles and guns right. and, and breaches borders. And, 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 and this stuff. has only been invoked once. Yes. When? For the United States in 9-11 and the attacks on the Twin Towers. That was the only instance when that was invoked. And uh, of course, at that time, they sought to rally other countries to go after who perpetrated this attack. What I find very interesting, Alex, about Article 5 is that it's very outward facing, meaning it's targeting, it's meant to target countries who are not member of NATO. But what happens when NATO countries attack one another and how ex like can you invoke Article 5 against another member of NATO? So there's so <laughs> many different uh, you could say um, so many issues that would come up before you would ever even get to that place. The degree of coordination and how we are so inextricably intertwined in our security infrastructure, you wouldn't get to that point. But I would say there are issues where a number of allies are not living up to their mm. responsibilities mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. the alliance. Mm -hmm. So you've got, you know, places like uh, Turkey in particular right. cracking down on media freedom and throwing journalists in jail. They've got U.S. embassy personnel locally hired who are in jail for, you know, fake reasons, essentially. And so these are things where you have one of the largest NATO allies acting up, if you will, and not focused on the shared democratic values and why we even 
came together as partners, it generates a bit of a problem. I want to build on this concept of like checking each other. So how do allied countries in NATO respond to one another when each country is not necessarily demonstrating the values of of the treaty, right? So if it's really easy, uh, and Anthony, I'm looking to you to help me unpack this. It's really easy for the United States to point a finger at Hungary and say, oh, suppression of media. But it's also just as easy for someone to look at the United States and look at our, the way we treat our media or to look at the way we suppress votes or to look at hate crimes and the way we treat our Muslim brothers and sisters, right? Like for as much as we say we have these common values and it's easy for us to identify people on the outside who uh, might be targeting us to do harm or to hurt our allies. I mean, we also aren't necessarily, I think we're not necessarily like the best examples to to others in terms of, you know, how you treat people good. So I don't know. I, I struggle with that a little bit. You know, Anthony, what do you what do you think? Well, I'll say I'll say a couple of things on, on that. I will always uh, advocate and defend for diplomacy. And one of the things that you were alluding to earlier that we use in the defense sphere is what's known as left a bang. And so that's left a bang, left a bang or left a boom. I believe it was Admiral Mullins, who was our former uh, joint chief of staff to help to bring the phrase to, to light. And that basically talks about all the things that you can do prior to around going down range. There's sanctions, there's diplomacy, there's peacekeeping missions, there's a number of things that you can do. And so for that end, I think it's important that um, we look at having honest brokers as, as diplomats or, or even citizen diplomacy, which involves just you and I when we visit individual countries. Montenegro. Uh, Montenegro, <laughs> which I, we can talk about logistics for that, for that a little I'm later. I'm ready, I'm ready. But, you know, us being honest brokers, we act as, as diplomats uh, for that. And there, there are things that happen behind the scenes, mm -hmm. but you have to be, when you have behind the scenes discussions, you have to have honest brokers, you have to be informed, and you have to kind of humble yourself. I always talk about diplomacy. Does if that you exist would, in 2019? I, I think that it can. <laughs> but, it you know, but, but I, I will say one thing about compromise and probably learn this from failed relationships. <laughs> it doesn't always mean that we're going to get what we what we want. Yeah. And it and it's give and it's take. We can't have this posture of that. It can only be our way or the or the highway. Mm -hmm. And so you are right. Um, Alex travels abroad a lot. I do as well. And we are being put to task on our hypocrisy, if you will. And so it's on us, again, as honest brokers, as citizen diplomats to reinforce and to act out and to live out the values that we say that we mm -hmm. that we share. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, after working in civil society with human rights defenders and now being back in government in a diplomatic role, uh, the Helsinki Commission was essentially founded in 1976 as the diplomatic front of the Cold War. Mm. I mean, that's it's simple right. and plain. And part of it was it was an institution that provided accountability for U.S. engagement mm. in that, in addressing all of those left-to-bang issues. Right. So human rights and our own domestic compliance mm. with what we have mm. said to other countries yeah. that we would do. And so an example of this, of how we hold our allies and partners accountable just this last week uh, we the Helsinki Commission convened a briefing on political developments in Hungary in particular a number of the disconcerting issues around corruption associated with the, the ruling party around some of its uh, nefarious connections with uh, the Kremlin and you know how, that generates a vulnerability for our alliance if you know we have allies who have, you know, they're, or they're developing security ties with right. countries who are actively seeking to right. put us. And Hungary in is a NATO member. Just I want to make sure and people Hungary's have a NATO made this member connection. Since Hungary is a 1999, and, mm. and there has been a lot of retrograde action politically of hate crimes there. Of you know, I've even witnessed some of that myself as I traveled there and worked with some you know communities of asylum seekers and and human trafficking victims and others in Hungary who are treated now exceptionally poorly mm. and it's criminalized to even help them. And so 
that is really getting a long way from where our shared values are uh, as an alliance. And and we find ways to diplomatically engage with them through briefings like right. things that the Helsinki Commission convenes or through our direct engagement with elected officials there to say, hey, y'all are like out chill out. You know, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's let's circle the wagons a little bit and, yeah. and think about why we got in together as partners. And and then it gets to the point to, you know, if, if you want to continue to go in this way, right away from where our alliance is, right. our values, then, I mean, how, how are we going to continue to ride? To ride. Yeah. So the partners, they all have these these value um, based commitments that they have to live up to. But then there's the controversial thing around the money. Yeah. So let's get to the basis for a lot of the critique around NATO and whether or not the United States is actually gaining anything from this relationship. And I feel like I'm always talking about President Trump's tweets, but because he lays out such, you know, lofty claims about issues and topics and people, I feel like it's important that we unpack some of that a little bit and give a more um, honest perspective about what's going on. So let me just read the tweet. President Trump said, presidents have been trying unsuccessfully for years to get Germany and other rich NATO nations to pay more toward their protection from Russia. They pay only a fraction of their cost. The U.S. pays tens of billions of dollars too much to subsidize Europe and loses big on trade. Uh, So is he right? We want to take that I, one. I can jump in briefly. <laughs> I'll just Part- start off by saying it's false. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's- <laughs> NATO is financed by contributions from member or allied nations. Uh, and it, that contribution is determined based on some of the, the size of the GDP of that country and their own expenditure on their own defense. And so the U.S. ends up, based on the size of its economy, contributing more. It's 22%. And based on the infrastructure that exists, one of the commitments that he harps on a lot is this two percent goal mm-hmm. that was a part of a a previous uh, you know declaration and uh, made by a number of the countries together. And that is that you each country in the alliance should spend two percent on their own defense. Okay. And we spend in the United States three point six percent right of our GDP on. You know, everything that goes into our our defense. And so we try and encourage others to do the same. So if I understand correctly, Alex, you're saying that basically the amount that each country gives is based on the size of their economy. So countries like Montenegro give a smaller percentage because they're a smaller economy. Does that mean then Montenegro or other smaller countries have to make up for the difference in other way, like more troops, more technology, Like, how do we ensure that there's equal distribution of effort here? Well, the entire budget of of NATO is actually not that big. It's one point four billion dollars on the the military side. And then (laughs) 250 million in terms of civilian side and and the expenses, Mm -hmm. you know, the headquarters, et cetera. And so 22 percent of that is is nominal in the scope of the size of our defense. Right. And what we spend every year, five, six, you know, seven, you know, billion more than that. So this is one of the things where each country figure figures out its own way Mm -hmm. to contribute to the alliance and either developing centers of excellence on certain levels of expertise or, you know, contributing troops in terms of numbers. And they do different things. Even our partners, countries that aren't even in NATO, Mm -hmm. contribute numerous troops like they just homies they friends yeah they just ride with us yeah georgia in particular which has lost many soldiers Mm. in afghanistan for example Mm. and because they see engagement with us with nato as an on-ramp into europe and an on-ramp into um, euro-atlantic integration got it that's thrown around a lot to say how do you bridge economies and institutions for countries to work together so that that's essential. What's the what's the incentive to join NATO? Like why do why do countries want to be members of NATO? 
well, it's it's the hottest group in town. I mean, it's, it's almost like you know they have the best are, parties. Are, are you, are you gonna club. join Vita? Are you gonna join you know Tom's? You know, are you gonna party in Montenegro? Or are you gonna party in who knows? Yeah, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's one way to look at it. I mean, but it does it gives credibility and also gives stability as well. And when you look at um, Georgia and this on their on their own wanting to to come up and and see that that need i was i've run a couple of marine corps marathons uh five just a actually. couple okay <laughs> i was waiting for, the, for it but the, last, <laughs> but the last year i ran i'm a part of a group called um uh, team side by side is with the allied forces foundation and i ran with with service members from georgia mm. that had amputees one um one service member had blades and the point is we crossed the finish line together and it's just seeing that uh, that transatlantic that that european connection and again people when we when we had that connection they knew that he was running with a marine and i saw yeah and they're, they're great too like these are the only people that i saw smoking cigarettes before running 26.2 <laughs> miles shots yeah. and i was having to keep <laughs> up with these guys Cha-cha. and i was having that's to keep up drink. with these guys oh my goodness <laughs> but it was a great experience and that's kind of that, that citizen diplomacy right piece. But, right uh, all in all, it's the it's the group to be a part of, but it's credibility and it's stability. And some of the talks that you brought in, the conversation that you brought up, I think you kind of take for granted. And again, we're talking about maybe possibly coming from a misinformed perspective mm. about what NATO has done, what what it is and, and what it can be. Mm-hmm. Just to dovetail into one of the areas you're talking about hypocrisy or people kind of checking us. I do a training called Defending Democracy, which mm. was helped stood up by a group that um, Alex was uh, formerly a part of. But it formed a parallel between uh, democratic erosion and democratic norms eroding in Europe, but also putting the mirror up mm. to the U.S. So free and fair elections, so civil mill divide, transparency, um, freedom of press. And when we saw instances in Turkey, you put that up on the board and people are like, yes, I've seen that. If you saw uh, Azerbaijan that had election tampering, like, oh, yes, I see that. But when you put up the parallel of instances that have happened in the United States, it was not well received initially. People did not want to believe that that could happen here. Uh, that, Americans. Uh, the Americans, yeah, within government. And so we, we have to kind of put the mirror up to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to kind of walk the talk. Yeah. People are taking notice. There's a lot more that we could cover, but I feel like this is this is enough um, and it's a good way to conclude the conversation. So you two are black men and the both of you could be doing a lot of work somewhere else in any part of the United States. And if you had to have a conversation with a brother at the barbershop, say, who was like, bruh. There was just another shooting on the corner. Why do you care about Hungary or the Ukraine when they aren't our brothers? I, I'll say the point. They are our brothers. I was going to say, I was going to say the same <laughs> thing. One of the things that, you know, through a lot of our travels, uh, you know, I've met a number of, you know, local activists, leaders, and many folks from the, the African diaspora in Europe, black Europeans. And, you know, they are going through struggles alongside a number of other, you know, ethnic minority communities in Europe that are similar to what you were telling, Anthony, about your family and the civil rights movement. They're living some of that right now. Mm -hmm. And that solidarity matters and our ability to engage where, you know, we can provide support for them is important. So it's really those leaders seeing them shine Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why I I continue to be engaged. What about you? I'll go to a Jay-Z quote. Go for it. You know, I I do it because so I can show others that two black guys can do it. You know, so that's I'm bad enough to do it, (laughs) to paraphrase a a Jay-Z lyric. Um, But A, to show um, that there is representation in this field, that, that plays a big part. And also I'm seeing more in the citizen diplomacy ranks and, and as I as I travel abroad, that people are tending to I won't say empathize, but kind of have a common bond between someone that maybe even might not look like them, but they recognize you represent a group that is marginalized. I do as well. I want to hear what you have to say. And you're going to bring a different aspect. That's why diversity, inclusion, equity and access in national security and foreign policy is important because you bring a different mindset. 
other than the the history or the, the status quo of our you know white male older count counterparts. Right, right. You bring a, a different end. I, I just think back to the the World Cup and the 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 Africans that were on the on the yes. French team. You know, and and what that meant. We are we are embedded and around the world. So it is no longer just a you know just Africa or just Detroit. Right, or, or right, right. We are everywhere. The DNA in our bloodline is everywhere mm-hmm. and so that plays a, a major part for for me while it's important and to teach the person at the barbershop or the beauty salon or the they, beauty salon if they, hey. if they let me in there <laughs> tell them about how, how okay to tell me to tell them how how it's all connected you know and messed up water in flint is just as important as um people being ostracized for their faith you know in another country yeah i mean you have this whole immigration process that's happening here you know you look at um at, at poland and hungary you know the places that you know if you if you don't fit this this milk toast kind of if you will yeah you know brandon people see you as an other right and so we're, we're in this together right and I can honestly say that I can't think of two other dapper black men in Washington, D.C. to better represent the United States than Alex and Anthony. I mean, they're out here doing the damn thing in Munich and in Austria. And um, there's just they just are dripping in in transatlantic swag and so well we, we do it if we you're gonna have represent exactly us. if you're gonna why. have true representation these two brothers right here this is a part of the it. fabric of america the fabric of america and, indeed, you know, indeed. Look, i never thought i'd be this, this brother of the castle in austria you know, Schloss, you know like <laughs> I, I, I can do Schlossen. that yes at the home of Mozart. And I, I, yes living living that life so how can they follow you if they want to keep up with all of your travels and all of the work that you're doing in the transatlantic space. I think Twitter is the best place to find me at ATJSK1. Okay. And what about you, Mr. And Robinson? I'm a security guy. I've, I've kind of left Facebook and the gram alone. So <laughs> just only Twitter for me. So that's uh, at Rob Can Do. I will also be posting more information on the website and on social media where you can stay up to date on what both of these men are doing. So In true fashion, we try to end this show on a positive note. I feel like this was a good conversation, not too doom and gloom. But as I mentioned, I love music and I think music is something that brings people together in this world when when things are really crappy. So I ask Alex and Anthony to share a song that keeps them in a good mood, keeps the feet light, keeps the mind right when when things are a little um, tough in the world. What was your song? So I, I'm taking the liberty on, on this one. Uh, and because music has been a part of my life, I gave you some background on the, the house I was brought up in, working in music, being a DJ. I car- I actually carry crates, you know. What? Yeah, What's I, a crate? Explain for these, no. <laughs> actual, actual, actual records, actual records. But uh, the, song, the song that I chose was uh, Donny Hathaway, Someday We'll All Be Free. Perfect. I will co-sign that. Yes, amen to that. And on a Sunday. Yes, Anthony. That's how I roll. And thank you all for listening again. Uh, you Don't forget, you can listen to other episodes of What in the World at whatintheworldpodcast.com. You can also find me on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, on social media. I'm always sharing clips from various episodes. So you can follow on Twitter, at WITW Pod. You can follow on Instagram at WITW Pod and of course on Facebook under What in the World Podcast. So thank you both again and thank you all for listening. Enjoy the tunes. Welcome.